0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend, Peter Simon to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors, and taxpayers. Peter, this week we've had a VE Day, in uh, a Victory Day in Europe, marking the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. Uh, and in a kind of roundabout way, I'd like to start by uh, a discussion about whether or not financial markets are good at telling us what's going to happen next, with just a very short kind of little anecdote about the the way that the markets behaved during the Second World War. Uh, and you might think that is a rather curious roundabout way, but uh, please just bear with me for a moment. Um, as we know, the Second World War lasted six years, uh, at least for European participants. Uh, and it went back and forth. The balance of power went back and forth. Well, obviously, we know that in the end, the uh, the right guys won, if you like, and the wrong guys lost. But it was, all, it was very much uh, in the balance for quite a long time. And I just wanted to start with this observation that, uh, as recorded in a splendid book by uh, uh, Barton Biggs, about how the stock market performed during the Second World War. And the remarkable thing about it is that Uh, It correctly identified the key turning points in the war, both in Europe and in the Far East. And it did so at the time, if you go back and read all the contemporary records, it did so at the time when the pundits, the experts, and indeed the general public had a very different view of the outcome. In fact, they were very gloomy at the precise point when the turning point happened. They were very mired in gloom, particularly the experts. And yet the stock market was able, correctly as it turned out, to identify those uh, turning points long before uh, even expert and considered opinion caught up with it. So with that in mind, I wondered whether you would like to offer me an opinion about whether the markets so far in their reaction to this crisis, the the war against the virus, if you like, uh, have got it as right, or if you think they've got it as right, as they seem to have done, during the Second World War.
1: Johnson. good morning. And that was very interesting, your introduction there. I haven't read Barton Biggs's book, at least not that one. And so I haven't really studied what the stock market did during the Second World War. But what sounds familiar in what you say is that when you take the bottom of the market, how many people at the bottom of the market are brave enough or stupid enough or intelligent enough to call the bottom of the market. And those who failed to call the bottom of the market in the Second World War uh, are in good company in terms of the numerous other bottoms of the market that took place since the war. And um, I started looking at financial markets in 1973, on the day that the oil price oil price quadrupled, which was a very uh, sobering experience because, as you know, uh, what the markets did in the next few years was was truly horrendous. But who called the bottom of the market in 1974, 1975, and then again in 1979, whenever it was? and in all the bottoms of the market since then. Very few, for the simple reason, that fear uh, takes over from greed. I know your friend always said, be greedy when everyone else is fearful, and be fearful when everyone else is greedy, and he's right. Um, So that brings us up to the present, when markets hit rock bottom, when fear replaced greed, and when the point of maximum pessimism uh, occurred, and also when the forecasts, all the forecasts were either thrown out of the window or so terribly negative that everyone was saying that this crisis here, the virus crisis is even worse than the global financial crisis of last, over the last decade. In that respect, they were right, because the amount of money that's been thrown at the problem by the not only by the leading central banks but also through a combination of monetary and fiscal policies is quite striking obviously the the fiscal policies because they're done by politicians they take place much more slowly but the central bank monetary policy happened like a flash and i think what was possibly underestimated by the 99% of pessimists who are commenting the market, is that you don't fight central banks. You don't fight the Fed, and you don't, don't fight the ECB, With of course, with consequences that we'll talk about a little bit later when it comes to the European Central Bank and the situation they find themselves in now. Uh, and then, of course, the, the Bank of Japan and other lesser central banks. So the wall of money that was put into the, uh, the wheels, into the machine to get the wheels turning was something that was completely ignored by the market participants, but not by the market itself. So you know that I believe, and I know that you believe, that markets have the job of anticipating what's going to happen in the future. Now, obviously, the future could mean the short term, the long term, and so on. And obviously, also, the markets don't always take that responsibility. For instance, during periods of complete turbulence, volatility, and the sort of mood we experienced at the bottom of the market and the days before and after. But in the longer term, that's what they do. So, I don't know if you're asking me my opinion as to whether this is a false bottom, but I think I'll preempt that question before you put it to me, because I can feel it coming. (laughs) Um, But I find myself fully invested in the things that I usually invest in, because I believe that the, the world economy is probably going to change and the consumer behavior will change. And you can see that in certain sectors, which have been the winning sectors and which have been the losing sectors. But even in the losing sectors, if you take a two to three year view, you can imagine that the economic agents out there will resume their roles. So that's my opinion. Now, of course, the question now is whether it's inflation or whether it's deflation. So I'm very keen to hear what you think about that, inflation versus deflation. And before you answer, the reason I put this to you, and you could put this to me, is because I find that people who've been around longer, like Moses and Methuselah, for example, have a different view about the subject compared with people whose um, experience and whose memory are shorter. So I'm very keen to hear what you think.
0: Right. Okay. Well, I think to take the last point first, I mean, the reason why I think those of us who are of more advanced years, perhaps, uh, are concerned about inflation is because we've lived through it, uh, or at least our parents lived through it, and we've lived through it to, to some extent. Though not perhaps at the, um, uh, in our peak kind of uh, working lives, but certainly I remember very well the 1970s when my uh uh, when I was uh, at university and at school, uh, and a lot of people suffered hugely during uh, the inflationary troubles of the 1970s. And anybody who's lived just as indeed uh, those who'd experienced, you know, the World War, Second World War, uh, were hugely influenced by that experience. So I think everybody who lived through the 1970s inflationary period were hugely influenced by that as well. And of course, we do know from from all studies of history that uh, inflation is a, something to be, uh, at least uh, significant inflation, uh, that is, you know, more than, say, 10%, is something to be uh, devoutly not desired because it's very, uh, uh, very damaging to society, not just to, it's damaging to economies, but it's also damaging to the fabric of society because it, it uh, punishes some much more than, than others, uh, even though everybody eventually does suffer from it. So I think it's a it's a big, but experience is of course what governs how people react to things that go on around them. Uh, we all have different, uh, uh, if you like, memory banks and 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 banks of experience in our brains that react to things as they happen. So it's not surprising that I think uh, older people have a more of a uh, have a greater fear of inflation than perhaps the younger generation who've known nothing but a period when uh, prices have been very stable on the whole uh and uh <clears throat> that's i think is inevitable so what do i what do i think about that well i uh, personally uh i am going to start with my uh, normal opinion which is that i really don't know for sure i have no <laughs> i have no uh confidence that i will be able to give you the correct answer to that question uh, and i have to say i do take some comfort going back to just our first point we discussed from the fact that you know you don't necessarily need to have an opinion about everything in order to be uh, successful in investing. You need, you need to have some confidence in the market uh, system itself and, and indeed in the ability of markets to foretell what is going to happen uh, and to react to them. Um, but the honest answer is I, I I don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, the, uh, the, the, the pandemic, which was what we're talking about, the immediate uh, threat to the market has uh, caused problems on both the supply and demand side of the world economy. Obviously, the lockdown has uh, stopped uh, a lot of firms from producing uh, the goods they were producing before. And on the other hand, uh, consumers not going out to spend money on a lot of things they were going to spend it on before, like travel, restaurants, and so on, which have been the sector's most affected. But my guess would be, if you ask me if I to face a guess, that in the short term, we're going to get, uh, there'll be no risk of inflation happening in the short term. But in the longer term, uh, by which I mean, you know, the longer term is at least... 18 months or two years away, (laughs) Uh, we are going to see some some signs of incipient inflation, mainly because of the reaction to the vast amount of government spending and debt that is going to be accumulated. But that would be my first guess, but I don't see it as an imminent problem. What do you think?
1: I completely uh, uh, understand and have empathy with that view. And... You're quite right in what you said, that the re- that inflation is a horrendous force, which causes huge pain also in society. That's quite true. And I agree with you that what we're seeing here is a struggle between supply and demand. I also think that when the virus started in China, <clears throat> pundits were saying that there's going to be a supply shock and that that is going to cause inflation you look up what it means supply shock it can either mean mean an explosion in supply or it can mean a sharp contraction in supply Uh, but then as things improved in China and the virus moved to the west the supply shock pundits were replaced by a demand shock pundits as you quite rightly say people stayed at home and they couldn't They couldn't exercise their their demand. Um, Whether that demand is pent up and the extent to which it is pent up remains to be seen, and you're quite right, we don't know. But if you look, if you go back to basics and look at the definition of inflation, then inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. But of course, goods today they don't have the same importance as they used to when that term was invented, that too much money chasing too few goods produces inflation. The question I would pose today, are there, are too many services and cyber services of that chasing too little money? So not, is too much money chasing too few goods? No. No are too many services chasing too little money? Because if that's the case, then you won't have pricing power reverting back to the producer. And remember that uh, when, when you went into the twilight between uh, inflation and no inflation, what happened was that there was a transfer of pricing power from the producer to the consumer, and it stayed there for a long time. And so that would be a very big call to say that Pricing power will revert back to the producer. I don't see that happening uh, in general. And of course, if there's a bit of inflation, it does happen, and that is the excuse for the stock market to go up because when there's an, when there's inflation, companies are able to get away with rising with raising their prices. But you know, productivity is falling. Um, business spending is sluggish. Uh, Capital and labor mobility is lower. And, of course, there's record unemployment. Now, when there's record unemployment, you saw yesterday, the unemployment figure in the States has gone up to nearly 15%. I can't see that being very inflationary. So my view, and before you mention gold, (laughs) I will obviously agree that gold has been going up and up and up, and that's often used as as a reason to be... To think, inflation. I don't think that it's, it could just as well be gold protecting us against the uh, erosion of uh, consumer power through deflation, rather than through inflation, because the result is actually the same. Your your powered your the the value uh, of your consumption power is eroded. So I think that inflation is, we're far away from that. I think that there are far too many disinflationary, uh, um, uh, for example, the fact that bond yields have collapsed and share prices have exploded and the gap between the two is yawning and people are saying that the stock market is much too expensive. That for me is all a background of deflation. And so the question for me is, is it going to be a deflationary bust or a deflationary boom? If it's the latter, then we've got some very exciting stock markets ahead. And if it's the former, then God help those who buy companies with over-indebted balance sheets. Okay, so
0: <clears throat> I think what one of the problems about the virus uh, pandemic is that I think we all have an intuitive understanding that it is going to change something. Okay, let's the markets I think are rightly assuming that the worst of the the crisis the worst uh, uh, outcomes that people had at the beginning when it was still an unknown quantity uh, are probably uh, we are passed through that. So now we can look ahead to economic activity resuming, but I think we all have an understanding an intuitive understanding that some things are going to change just as uh, during the Second World War for example a lot of things changed. And never went back to the way they were before the war started. Now, uh, you can argue about the extent to this shall happen, but it's clear that if, for example, just to take one you know mundane example, if if it's the case that in for the next you know foreseeable period, say 18 months, two years at least, that uh, airlines are gonna to have to remove a whole row of seats out of their planes, you know, again, in order to have social distancing. That is a fundamental change in the economics of the airline industry, which are precarious at best, let's be honest. Um, So that's going to have significant impact in one sector. And similarly, we don't know whether people will get so used to living at home and working at home that actually they stop traveling to work, for example, as much as they did before. Uh, I, I think we all know people who have found that working at home is actually just as efficient as going into the office. It depends what kind of job you do. So I think we're all kind of got a sense that we, uh, intuitive sense that some things are going to change. Um, But, and therefore it's a kind of system of of kind of moving parts. And we don't quite know how all the moving parts will come together. And that will have an impact I think on this supply demand equation that you've talked about as being fundamental to to, uh, whether inflation or deflation happens. Um, In other words, certain industries are going to be, or services are going to be affected in some ways and others are going to be affected in different ways. Uh, by that whole issue. I mean, there are a lot of people, for example, who believe that you know airline prices are going to go up, the cost of traveling and tickets are going to go up, which would be potentially inflationary for those who have to use them. Uh, whether that turns out to be the case, not we don't know, we'll have to find out. Uh, but it is reflected, as you say, in the way that the different sectors in the um, stock market have performed, and we talked about that before. Um, but I'd like to highlight one one other possible uh, issue here, which is... Uh, thinking about what's happened to the oil price. I mean, we can. there's there's always this tension between saying what is a price of something telling us about the balance of supply and demand Uh, and what actually is likely to happen from here when we get into the second-order effects. So the oil price has fallen dramatically this year, just as it did uh, two or three years ago, but it's fallen even more dramatically this time uh, to a very low level. Uh, And people can see why, because there's too much oil Around the world at the moment, there's nowhere even to store some of it because it's being produced in, in record numbers. However, the, the oil industry, in oil and gas industry, is is a very cyclical industry, as we know. So when oil prices collapse, uh, firms stop, they cut back, they stop investing, and eventually, after a period of time, then prices start to rise again because of supply uh, shortages. Uh, and I'm sure that's going to happen with the oil price. I mean, I would be astonished if the oil price was to stay at twenty dollars a barrel for a long time. And if that does start to go significantly, that is a contributor, a potential contributor to inflation as well. So it's while it's a sign of the balance of power at the moment, it also may yet be have be sowing the seeds of a future uh, rise. So I think it's very complicated. I don't think we know how it's all going to play out. Uh, I think your basic instinct, obviously, is correct that uh, we, need, we still need to worry about deflationary bust. Um, but I, I also think there's one other aspect we might quickly discuss in this, which is um, who is gonna benefit from these this disruption? Is it basically larger companies or is it smaller companies? You were talking about whether pricing power will remain. Okay, I think you could make an argument. The stock market seems to be saying that large companies are gonna be able to survive this more easily Uh, which is logical. You'd have to think that's good. Lots of small businesses are really struggling. They may go bust and so on. Uh, And to that extent that uh, industries have been dominated by, you know, you've got oligopolies in a lot of places, that also implies to me that there might be an element of uh, not just uh, ability to retain pricing power, but actually an ability to impose it on, uh, on the world. And that would be inflationary as well, or mildly inflationary. So I don't know where to go from there, but I think that's something we need to be tracking on a a regular
1: basis. And I think we will be tracking it on a regular basis because the two um, remaining points about this question that we haven't discussed and and we won't discuss it now because time is not on our side is, first of all, what you mentioned, that the trillions and trillions that are being thrown at the problem by the governments through debt and all the rest of it. And secondly, the effect thereof on the money supply and why there doesn't seem to be this traditional link between money supply increase and inflation. Now, this is maybe not the favorite subject for listeners, but it's a very important one which we can touch upon uh, the next time or the time after.
0: Okay, well, let's look forward to doing that um, I thought I just I might kind of throw in at the last thing another a quote from uh, uh, attributed to Napoleon no less, uh, who said that the uh, the only one who is wiser than anyone than anyone is everyone. In other words, it's a way of saying that there is actually uh, you can have a collection of completely irrational people, and you put them all together in a room, and as long as they're all telling you. Uh, Uh, They have a, they have a, they have a uh, something, an interest in the outcome. Their prediction of what's going to happen is almost always superior to any individual, whether rational or irrational.
1: I love that because it applies to two things. First of all, to the stock market, which we just said, the stock market is, in inverted commas, always right and is wise, whereas the individual participants are nearly always wrong. Uh, But the other thing, since you mentioned that, which really struck me. Um, as a musician, because I'm a musician, is that when you have a crowd that is singing a song or a hymn, funnily enough, the crowd sings it in tune. And the more people in the crowd, the more in tune it is. But if you pick out a number of individuals from that crowd and ask them to sing that hymn or that tune, it's hopelessly out of tune. That's always struck me.
0: Well, that's a very good note on which to end, Peter. I'm, am I'm, I'm sure that I'm certainly one of those who'd be singing out of tune. But
1: uh, uh, I shall have to hide in a, in a large crowd in future. Um, well, we can try it next time. We can try it for our listeners. We can sing a song. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that may indeed be a, a bridge too far. I'm not so sure. But anyway. <laughs> Peter, thank you very much. Well, we've we've sort of skirted around the issue of inflation and deflation. We kind of put our provisional bets down on the table, and we'll have to see what happens. But yes. uh, I look forward to um, to uh, to seeing which of us is uh, is more right.
1: Well, so am I, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Very enjoyable as always. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah Weekly Podcast hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silent. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.